it's very common that clients will come to me in dentistry or, you know, who are physicians or whatever the case is, people who are very specialized and they spend the first 30 years of their life really just learning their craft yeah. um, with a lot of financial shame. They feel shame for not knowing certain things. They feel yeah. shame for maybe being in debt, which is absolutely normal when you spend $400,000 on schooling. Um, and I really don't want clients or honestly, my clients or anyone to ever feel like that. Welcome to the Truth About Dentistry podcast. I am Dr. Peggy Bound, a successful solo dental practice owner in St. John, New Brunswick. After years of figuring out how I wanted to practice, I now run a fully digital clinic providing my own brand of dentistry on my own terms. It wasn't easy and I'm still learning, but I know I have so much knowledge to share. This podcast is created to help inspire young dentists or anyone looking to transition to a more digital practice. I aim to give you actionable step-by-step strategies to help you navigate the modern dentistry landscape. If you're looking to become more digital, improve your skills, or even have a more profitable practice, then this podcast is for you. Now let's get started. Hello, everyone. It's so exciting to be here today because I have a very special guest and I think someone that you're all going to enjoy because we all need this in our life. And that is a wealth advisor, someone who knows how to help us manage, you know, the money that we make and the best way to invest it and what we should do with it in order to have a very happy and low stress kind of life from that side of things. So I want to welcome Gurdesh Varn. He is a wealth advisor. You're located right in BC, Gurdesh. And he is uh, the founder of White Coat Financial and also the host of a podcast, which is how I met him. He he asked me to be on his podcast, The Dollars and Doctors Show. So um, welcome, Gurdesh. And uh, thanks thanks for having me. Yeah. A little bit about him, of course, is that after completing, he did an undergraduate degree in economics at the University of British Columbia, and he obtained multiple qualifications in the financial sector. He's actually a registered mortgage broker. He's an insurance broker, and he holds uh, both chartered life underwriter and certified financial planner designations. A lot of studying, I'm sure, (laughs) Gadesh. Yes. And uh, in, 19, in 2022, he earned a spot on the Wealth Professional Canada regist- Rising Stars list. And that, you know, really honors the brightest young talents um, under age 40 uh, in the Canadian wealth management industry. So that's pretty impressive. And then last year, uh, or this year, I think earlier this year, he's crowned the Wealth Professional Canada Young Achiever Award. So... That, that's also quite impressive. And anything, anytime I've talked to him and we were chatting, of course, before the, the, the show began, is that he you know, really likes to give you the honest truth. So I, I'm really excited that he's going to be able to give you some answers to some things. We're going to actually take you through today, through the journey of from when you're a new graduate all the way up through your, your mid-career to a little bit getting into the later stages of your career, like my, like my concerns and things that I have would be different than someone who just graduated. So we're going to go through some of those things and some of the more bigger questions that tend to come up um, you know, in, in dentistry. And um, Gurdesh, I, I want you to kind of speak a little bit how you got into, before we start, because um, you, you gave me all this stuff here, but I'd like to hear it from you, like how you got into helping basically mostly white coat professionals, would you say, and kind of what that, who that includes. And, and uh, again, welcome to the show, and uh, thank you for, uh, 
for sharing all this with us. So I'll let you let you uh, let us tell us that now. Yeah. For well, for starters, thanks for having me on. Um, I'm actually very excited because I was listening to your podcast before, and then eventually I had you as a guest, and now I get to be a guest on yours. So it is a a nice full circle moment. So thank you for that. Um, but how I got into working with white coat professionals, which is we typically help doctors across Canada. So that would include dentists uh, and physicians, optometrists, even, um, and then a couple even veterinarians or other professionals. The the idea was that if you wear a white coat traditionally, I know no one actually wears the white coat now. Everyone wears scrubs or figs they or whatever. Scrubs. Yeah, exactly. Everyone wears dark, dark scrubs. But if you had your white coat ceremony and you traditionally wore a white coat, we're here to serve you. So it's really focusing on doctors. Um, and how I got into it was I always had a large group of medical professionals that I was already working with because um, I went to UBC. A lot of medical professionals live in that area. Even when I worked at TD in Scotia, I was working with a lot of those types of professionals. Um, but I was always scared to market myself as someone who only works with those professionals. But then COVID happened um, and it allowed me to go Canada wide with my services and everything's done on Zoom instead of in person. And so that's when I was really, obviously, everyone had a lot of time to reflect. So I was really in a position where I was looking at my business. And I thought, how could I do this better? How could I specialize in who I help? How do I do a better job with my clients? Because I was struggling with trying to understand so many different professions. Lawyers are obviously going to have very different needs than a dentist would. Same thing with, you know, someone who works in the construction management space or a realtor, or other people, maybe someone who's just an investor. Um, so I was really struggling with how do I hone in on my skills, get very good at dealing with a specific type of person. Um, and then, yeah, COVID hit. And so I was like, you know what? This is the perfect opportunity for me to narrow down who I work with um, and just do more of what I'm already doing. Um, and then ever since then, it's been, uh, it's it's very funny. I was very scared, but my business has grown quite a bit ever since I specialized. And even now, I would say 50 to 60% of my clients are actually just dentists. Um, and so going forward, I have had the idea of potentially specializing even further with just dentists instead of having physicians and optometrists as well. Mm -hmm. Well, no pun intended, but the riches are in the niches. So I think you're on the right track. <laughs> you really, the more specialized we become, I've done that myself with my own career, is just become much more focused in just a couple of areas. And you feel better, you feel more confident, you gain momentum, and then you get known for something. So the people want to go see you because that's that's your area of expertise. So I think that's really smart. And uh, and yeah, I mean to to now have that many dentists or have that big part of your of your I I feel dentists are I mean again I don't know other professions but I find dentists tend to not be really good with finances <laughs> and and maybe they're like they're just so busy trying to get through school and trying to keep on top because we're very ce junkie like we're very focused yeah. on all our ce but our ce never has to do with like our own investments and our own financial health so um i think this is a really important topic and especially since what's happened to us through covid um i i really feel yeah. that we need more people like you. <laughs> so yeah, no, I, I'm very happy to chat about this. I did want to say one thing. Um, and I, I get this a lot. I've actually mentioned it on another podcast. It's very common that clients will come to me in dentistry or, you know, who are physicians or whatever the case is, people who are very specialized, and they spend the first 30 years of their life really just learning their craft yeah. um, with a lot of financial shame, they feel shame for not knowing certain things, they feel yeah. shame for maybe being in debt, which is absolutely normal when you spend $400,000 on schooling. Um, and I really don't want clients or honestly, my clients or anyone to ever feel like that, because I don't know 
anything about oral health. I've just started flossing on a regular basis now, now that I have clients who are dentists um, because everyone was really on me about not doing it. Um, and so it's, you shouldn't feel financial shame. I said this on another podcast, but I, I made a joke that if you ask me where my kidneys are on my body, I don't know if they're on the front or if they're on the back, what they do. That doesn't mean I'm stupid. It just no. means that's not the area I know a lot about. And that's why I would go to see a medical professional for information on, you know, my overall health. And so if you don't know about finances, one, it's not your fault because it's never taught to you. And number two, you shouldn't feel shame because that would be the equivalent of someone being out of shape, going to a personal trainer and feeling ashamed that they're not in the best shape of their life. That's exactly why you go to the personal trainer to get in better shape. The fact that you're even there having the conversation is something you should be proud of. So as soon as you're having a conversation about money or trying to learn about money, you should give yourself a pat on the back because it's not something people learn about. It is extremely emotional. Um, there's a lot of misconceptions. There's a lot of misinformation. And so it's really difficult to you know sort through the weeds and, and figure out what you should be doing. So um, that's one thing I wanted to mention off the, off the jump. If someone goes through this and they're listening and they're like, I don't know what he's talking about. Or, you know, oh, I made that mistake. I shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't feel like that. So it's a progress. You get better over time. Um, and you really should just pat yourself on the back for even trying. So would you say, though, we could, if someone were to, you know, kind of contact you and work with you, you're, you're like a financial coach, not just there to sell a product. Because that's what we, we go down that road. And I've been caught in the, those roads or those ruts where, I'm being sold a product, so I think they make me think like there's they have almost like a their own vested interest. So I don't know whether I can trust and how much I can put there and how to make those decisions. But what I would be looking for as a professional starting out or even now would be more of a financial coach that could really be objective and just tr like be on my side, and I could trust that that's where my the advice wasn't going to be biased. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, I don't want to turn this into a podcast where I'm just shamelessly plugging my company, White Coat. No, but, I, but I'm honestly, but, I'm very intrigued because I didn't really talk to you about this before. But I feel like, if is that what you do though? Like, is that where you saw a, a weakness or an area where that there needed to be more uh, help in this? For yeah, professionals? absolutely. So I'll I'll sort of break this up into two parts of why I actually started even in this industry, because when I was at TD and, and at Scotia, I was always just like a mortgage person first. And then eventually I moved into the investment side uh, of the business. So I was managing, you know, clients with high net worths, people who've usually on the other side of dentistry where they've sold their practice, oh, okay. they've gotten five, $10 million. And now they're like, okay, what do I do with this money? I'm retired. And I would manage that. Um, and my issue with it was typically what happens with a wealth manager is they will charge you a percentage of your investments. Um, so typically it's around one to one and a half, sometimes a little bit lower, but that's typically what you can expect to pay. Um, and that was a great profession to be in. My mentor was there. He was making very good money. I had the path to kind of the, essentially my mentor was the vice president of RBC uh, on the West coast here. And so I would buy his book eventually. I would make probably $5 million a year and life would be great. But I kind of looked at it and I was like, I think this business model is going to die in a decade or two. Really? Because if you think about it, everyone who's paying 1% a year for their investment management 
I think that model is inherently flawed. And I'm sure if we post this on LinkedIn, everyone's going to come at my throat, but I kind of don't care. Let's do it. I love uh, a good yeah. uh, viral video and viral. Yeah, I, I don't really care because what happens is, let's say you have $10 million that you have invested with your wealth advisor and you're paying them 1% a year to manage that. If my math is not wrong, you're paying 100 grand a year for investment management. But there is Nobel Prize, well, Nobel Prize winning, it's a strategy that's inspired by someone who's won the Nobel Prize called the efficient market hypothesis. And it essentially just means that when you buy the entire market, you usually can't beat the entire market by picking individual stocks. Right. So the idea is that no one really knows what the future holds. Um, by you going and picking a portfolio and trying to find the best stocks, you're very unlikely to actually just beat the index, which is all of the stocks combined, like an aggregate of all the stocks combined. Right. And so the idea here is, well, if I'm paying you $100,000 to manage my stock portfolio, why wouldn't I just buy the entire market? Because that's the thing you're trying to beat and you can't do it. Um, or at least you can't do it on a consistent basis. And that's where the industry kind of flipped on its head. A lot of people don't like index funds or ETFs because you could just buy those and you don't really have to pick stocks. Um, and you're going to get better returns typically or more consistent returns in a portfolio like that. Now, there is an entire side of this industry that will argue the opposite. Um, but I find that, okay, if you can't guarantee that you're going to beat the index, why are you charging me all these extra fees? You're going to charge me an extra hundred grand. Whereas, to, to put some context on it, if you wanted to buy the entire market, it probably cost you 0.25%, so a quarter of the fees. And then a lot of advisors started saying, well, you're not paying me for stock market management. You're paying me for, you know, financial planning advice. And it's like, okay, well, even that is flawed because now your advice is all centered around getting the most money into these portfolios so that you could charge 1% on it. But you're going to yeah. completely ignore real estate. You're going to completely ignore me buying a practice. You're going to completely ignore me setting up maybe a private pension plan that you don't get paid on. There's all of these areas that you're going to completely ignore because it doesn't add in to your assets under management that you're going to charge me a fee on. And so that was my thought process when I was in my early 20s. I was like, I think this business model is going to die. And if it's not going to, I'll at least try to push it in the, in the right direction to kill it. And so that's essentially what happened when I started White Coat Financial. So what you really want is an advisor who doesn't charge a percentage of your assets Ideally, you want someone who charges you a flat fee per year or hourly. And again, not to shamelessly plug my company, we just charge a flat fee for the year. We don't charge for anything else. Yes, we will manage, quote unquote, manage your investments, but there's not really much to manage. We're going to buy index funds and ETFs and make sure you're well diversified right. and that your portfolio is growing and there's very low fees. But really what you're paying us for is the financial planning, except now you're not paying us 1% of your investment portfolio, you're just playing a fat, flat fee per year um, that is not tied to any product or any sale of anything. You're just yeah. essentially getting coaching for a flat fee and you have this person who's managing all of your money and you just know, I just have this one fee I pay them. I, there's no, I could trust this person because they're not making a commission or they're not taking a percentage from other asset classes. And really what it creates is now when clients come to me, I don't care if they own all stocks. I don't care if they own all real estate or if they just want to own multiple clinics. I don't really They're care how you build. that fee to manage what they want or get advice for. What I tell my clients is you're going to pay me or, or honestly, honestly, even if you want to go to another advisor, what you want is this fee model. Is I just want to pay you a flat fee to give me advice on my entire financial situation and make sure that I'm moving in the right direction. 
So for us, I always tell clients, I don't care how, but the goal is to just grow your net worth every year. I want you to become wealthier on paper in a way that we can measure for a flat fee. And my my fee is really for advice on how you should be navigating tax waters, real estate, investing, insurance. So that's essentially what we do. Clients pay us a flat fee. And in exchange for that, they're getting advice on their entire situation, pretty much all under one roof, since we do mortgages and investments and insurance all in one spot. Yeah, because when you think about it, you pay them if you, if it's this this model that you're talking about that's probably going to die out is that you the more money they make for you then the more money that they can charge you so you really you in some ways yeah there's a little bit of a conflict of interest there maybe is that yeah and, and I'll say this there's no perfect model there's no perfect way of doing it in this industry I just don't think the value you get for the fees that are being charged yeah. are that high that's what um, I feel like well now that I'm at this point in my career with the amount of wealth that I have invested and what I have put in stocks and things like that. I'm starting to feel a little bit like, okay, is this fair? Like when it's not a lot of money, it's a bit different, but when it's a lot more, it can be start to, you start to question, what are your, what is it you're charging me annually for, to, to take care of this money? Like that's not doing exactly really. Yeah. And it's not really fair because you've probably worked with your advisor for a long time. And at this stage of your life, I would argue retirement is probably a couple years away or a decade or two away. And you're like, my kids are older. I don't want to be switching teams at this age. No. I don't want to feel uncertain at this age because no. the rest of my life has so many variables that are locked in. I have a partner. I have a clinic. I have kids. They're going to go to school. Yeah. Life never gets less complicated. It just gets more and more complicated. And so you don't want to start switching sides at this age. But sometimes you're like, okay, well, I just have to work with someone who has my best interest in mind, not yeah. how are you going to make the most money? Um, and that's that's typically my fear. And I'm sure, again, there'll be people who disagree with me or whatever the case sure. is. But yeah. I would say, okay, you could stay on that side. And in 10 or 20 years, you'll wonder why you no longer have a business. Right. Okay. Well, uh, yeah, I think that was a great, is there anything else you wanted to add? I mean, to, I mean, you, like I say, you had worked in the banks and then yeah. like you say during COVID. Oh yeah. I forgot to mention. Yes. Yeah, so when it comes to investing, that's why I went to a flat fee model, but I actually never used to do insurance. Before. Um, yeah. I wasn't an insurance advisor. Um, but then when I got my CFP and I really started understanding what insurance is and, and how this stuff works, I was actually going through my, my mom's paperwork and I was like, Hey, like, do you have insurance? We should probably look through this. Um, and I was pretty livid when I found out the type of insurance she had. She had a whole life insurance policy, which I will preface this. It's not a bad product. No. It's just poorly diagnosed. Um, just like chemotherapy is not a bad treatment plan, depending but on who you ask. It just needs right to be diagnosed properly. If you have a headache, you wouldn't start doing chemotherapy. It needs to be diagnosed correctly. It's the same analogy. thing with insurance. Um, it really just needs to be diagnosed correctly. And what was happening is, for context, my mom's a single mom. And she was sold this life insurance policy. It was only $100,000 and it was a whole life insurance plan. And it was extremely expensive um, for her budget. Sure. And she didn't have any disability insurance. She didn't have any critical illness insurance. Um, she was just sold this whole life insurance plan no. because typically those one are the easiest to sell. You could sell it as an investment rather than just insurance. You could sell it where you get your money back. And a lot of people who are un financially uneducated will want that plan solely because how it's sold the well, commissions are also typically higher on home as a tax-free plan too like it's it's very yeah i i'll say this we'll come back to whole life insurance yeah. and how it works but 
a lot of the time. So what was happening is I was looking through her plan. I was like, okay, well, you don't really need this. Because even, God forbid, if you had passed away, $100,000 was not enough for two young boys. We were 10 and 8 when she first got the plan. And we live in BC. That wouldn't have even covered a portion of the mortgage. Right. And meanwhile, I said, if you had a disability plan, you could have got life, criticalness, and disability insurance all for the same cost of this whole life insurance. And lo and behold, my mom did suffer from a long-term disability. She has not worked since I was eight years old. And she didn't have disability insurance. And we lived on government-funded disability, CPP. And so we lived on, I don't know what the amount was initially, but probably less than $2,000 a month to raise a family of three in British Columbia. And so as a result, we grew up in a really humble situation. Now, me as an adult, when I looked at this, mind you, I don't know what the conversation was like when he was talking to my mom about this stuff. But I was like... You so much hardship in my life, my brother's life could have been prevented if my mom just had the right insurance. Oh my god! And then I really started doing insurance. I was like, okay, this is nonsense. This needs to be done better. Reason though to (laughs) want better in the industry, I love that. Yeah, my my wife jokes. uh, It's kind of like a Marvel superhero, like a (laughs) villain arc story of like you were wronged and now you're just angry. (laughs) That's exactly what happened with me. Yeah, but you know, maybe these things do happen to the right people. Unfortunately, you know, that you suffered in in some ways, of course, but to the right people that can make the right changes and and that's that's how I guess we evolve and have the we get better. Yeah, you you take your hardships and you you try to turn them, you try to yeah. perform alchemy and turn them into something that's good for the world. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, so I think we have a really good foundation. Um so I think if we broke could we can we break um some of the key things that we as professional dentists especially should look out for at maybe if we broke it into like the three different phases of our career or maybe even if there's a fourth phase but definitely you know you're a new grad so you know i'm using my associate as an example she's been out for over a year now and one of her biggest things is you know when should i incorporate uh and what kind of strategies or advice should i use to repay she has a student loan she's not like threatened by it she's living in good life but you know how in what ways should i go about repaying it so i think that could be and maybe there's others that you can think of that you get as common but i know for sure that's and that was a big thing for me too like when should i should i incorporate now should like is there any advantage to doing that and then i really personally at that age really put a lot of money towards my debt i just paid off you know, I, I made a higher payment than I needed to and, and got my debt that way paid off. But it's different now. And, and maybe you have some advice for, for that, that uh, you know, that demographic. And then we can kind of move into, um, I, I feel like I'm headed towards more retirement. But, you know, and maybe in the, you know, just having kids and, and you know, buying a practice and all that. And then, you know, where I am, which I could be looking at selling it and retiring at some point. So. Yeah, I think it'd be good to kind of do an order of operations or a path of, okay, okay, I just graduated, you know, dental school. Now what? All the way to, I'm ready to sell my practice. Now what? (laughs) Because that's typically what happens. It's hard to know because like you say, I also have this whole life policy and I didn't, I've been pressured to buy more. And I mean, I, my, my, my intuition was, why do I need more? It doesn't make sense. So I kept fighting it and I never did buy more. But looking back, I feel like I made the right decision, but I really you know, that's the kind of decisions you get into when you're, when you like in around like late thirties, 40 years old, or that's where, when I was approached about it and just not knowing 
who to turn to and where to get good advice. But these people that you've built a relationship with, you know, they may have been helped you when, right from the day you started dental, finished dental school. You feel a little obligated. There's almost like a relationship there. So telling them that you don't trust them at that point feels awful, <laughs> to point. be honest. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's honestly, it is. I really like working with new grads, not just because I really like working with them because we're a little bit closer in age, but yeah. it it's very awkward working with someone mid-career who's been going to their advisor for 20 years and making the shift over. Yeah. Um, I've had that situation happen multiple times and like, like I'm surprised I don't have an ulcer because it's just such an awkward and weird situation. Hi. For me, honestly, I've gotten calls from advisors of who do you think you are? It's just really, really weird. Um, but yeah, I guess what we'll do is we'll walk you through sort of the, yeah. the front to back of what should I be doing in each life phase and some of the things to watch out for. That's so I typically always say, I have an article in oral health group that's coming up and it says what to do with your first paycheck. And I always say the first one, go ahead and blow it. Go buy that nice bag that you've wanted for all this time. Go on that nice vacation for a lot of guys. You might want a Rolex or something like that. I always say, go ahead and treat yourself, get it out of your system. My only advice is don't get something that has a payment attached to it. Okay. Meaning if you want a nice bag, you want a nice watch, you want to go on a vacation, go ahead and do that thing one time, get it out of your system, enjoy yourself, congratulate yourself. Cause I think we often don't do that. I'm someone who definitely doesn't do that. I just keep moving the goalpost oh, and never yeah, celebrating too. anything. Yeah. yeah. Um, I actually, I don't know if you're like this. When I hit a goal, I don't feel excitement. It's just relief that I hit it. <laughs> I know. What is it? It's just relief that now I don't have to mentally torture myself for not hitting that goal, which and then now we I'm set sure a new goal without <laughs> taking the moment to reflect and enjoy and 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 rejoice and celebrate in that yeah. goal. Yeah. So I'm not taking my own advice here, but I want to extend that to anyone who just finished school. Go ahead and treat yourself. You've delayed gratification for twenty something years. Go ahead and enjoy yourself. From there, what you really want to do is number one, get your disability insurance in place. You got to protect your hands, but more importantly, you really just want to make sure your entire body is protected. Um, dentistry is a young man or woman or person sport, um, and it is very hard on the body, but also hard mentally. So you want to make sure you have a disability plan that not just covers you physically, but it also covers mental health issues and other illnesses. Now, ideally, you would get this while you're still in dental school. Um, usually in third or fourth year, you have the availability or the option to start getting disability insurance for yourself. Yeah. But if you don't do it, then do it as soon as you start graduating. And if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, I've been practicing for a few years and I don't have disability insurance, please, please, please get disability insurance. You never know what's going to happen. Your entire financial base, all the fun stuff that you and I are going to talk about, like buying stocks and real estate, all of it depends on your ability to go in there and earn an income. So disability insurance protects that ability to earn an income. Your entire financial plan is built on you being able to earn an income. And, and that's exactly what disability insurance protects. And can you increase it every, like reassess it every five or 10 years to up it? But like, first, just what, what would you say would be a good amount that you could, I mean, it depends on what you can afford, I suppose, but like as a minimum that yeah. you should have. Yeah. I think you should apply for the absolute maximum that you can, depending on your income. So every year that your income increases, your disability insurance will be tied to that income. So if your income increases, you can increase your disability insurance. Okay. Now, there's a couple features you're going to want to add to your disability insurance right off the bat is you want to own occupation rider. In simplest terms, that means if you can't work as a dentist, you can still go and work in another profession and continue receiving your disability. Yes. income. So if you want to go into teaching, you can still do that while receiving disability income. Right. That's the first thing you want to add on. The second thing is usually a future income option or a future insurance option. It's usually called FIO. 
or an additional insurance rider. Something that says that, okay, if I want to increase my coverage in the future, I can do so without medical exams, without a new set of health questions. And then from there, you want to have those two on there no matter what. And then from there, you can kind of decide, do I want my disability income to increase with inflation? If you do, you can add what's called a cost of living adjustment, COLA. Um, you can add that on. Then then you can really add on bells and whistles. If you okay. can make sure that your disability insurance pays out forever. It doesn't stop at age 65. It's called a lifetime accident sickness and benefit. So it could pretty much pay out till you pass away. Or you can add a return of premium, which means every you know eight years, you get back 50% of your money or something like that. The calculation works there. Now, that is something I often hesitate to add because um, it increases the cost a lot. And then you start wondering, is the, is the trade-off worth it? But regardless, you're going to want disability insurance. Get the maximum you can get. Don't think about whether you can afford it. And that's the only time I'm going to say that. Okay. Disability insurance, you cannot not afford it, if that makes sense. You have to get it, in my yeah. opinion. Um, from there, you might want to get some critical illness insurance. That essentially just makes sure that if you get sick, you're diagnosed with one of 25 major illnesses, that you get a lump sum amount of money. And it's there to cover any acute, whether they're direct or indirect costs associated with getting sick. Maybe you need healthcare, some like a nurse to stay home with you. Maybe you need to make renovations to your home to make it more accessible. Okay. Or maybe you just don't want to have to worry about money while you've been diagnosed with a life-changing illness. It's really what critical illness insurance is. And then, again, we're still in the early stages. Maybe you get life insurance. My indicators for when you need life insurance is if you have people who financially rely on you or people who financially would be affected oh, okay. if you are no longer on this planet. That's it. That is the indicator for you need life insurance. If you have a mortgage, if you have a partner, if you have parents who rely on you financially. I know that's the case for a lot of dentists. Yeah. Their mom and dad put them through dental school. They took a loan on the house. They're the parents' retirement plan is my son or daughter is going to become a dentist and take care of me. If that's you, you typically need life insurance. And so those are really the indicators. From there, you're going to want to have two. You have really three options. Do I build an emergency fund? Do I pay down debt or do I start investing? Those are typically the first three questions you have once you got your first paycheck. Right. You got your insurance, but those are really the next three. Um, and I would say this, if you have a professional student line of credit, and again, I probably should have started with this. All of this is not advice. Um, it is simply just general rules of thumb. Yeah. And honestly, everyone's situation is going to be different. But generally, um, I am a big fan of paying down that professional student line of credit because it kind of kills two birds with one stone. You are one paying down your debt, but you're also building an emergency fund indirectly. Meaning if their car breaks down or something bad happens, you could pull money back off your professional line of credit if you need. Plus these days, the interest on it is very high. You're looking at six and a half, maybe up to 7%. So you do want to pay that down. It's a guaranteed return on your money. Um, and then from there, if you don't have a professional student line of credit, you probably want to start building up an emergency fund. And I recommend three to six months of your expenses, not your income. Your income might actually be $20,000. That doesn't mean you need to have a $60,000 emergency fund. Right. Whatever your expenses are, multiply that by three to six, and that should be your emergency fund. And then from there, you again, you have more options. It's do I start investing? Meaning, do I open up an RSP, a TFSA, the new FHSA? Or do I start, you know, just really aggressively paying down my debt? Um, and that is going to vary for every single person, depending on what their goals are. Um, but I'm a big fan of paying down your, your professional student line of credit as much as you can, opening up an FHSA, making those contributions, again, in the tax deduction, maybe even opening up an RSP. Um, and those are usually the, the first questions you're going to have in your first year. From there, and, and correct me if I'm moving along too fast here, but no, you're good. essentially, the next question is, do I incorporate or not? 
Um, and I will say you should incorporate when you are earning far beyond your living expenses. Meaning if I'm, you know, an associate dentist and I'm making anywhere between you know 50 and 30 grand a month, obviously some make more, some make less, but let's assume that's the range. Um, and my expenses are only like $5,000 per month, including, you know, my insurance and my car payment and my, right. my debt payments. Maybe it makes a lot of sense for you to incorporate now because the whole point of incorporating is sheltering the income that you do not need inside your corporation so you pay less tax on it. Because what happens in a corporation is you're going to pay income taxes on the first 500000 It should only be around 12% approximately. Whereas personally, if you earn the same money, your your tax bracket could get up to 50%. And so the benefit of a corporation is you're able to shelter income that you do not need to live inside your corporation at a more tax efficient rate. And then from there, you can invest it further into real estate yeah, stocks. So it has to be truly money that you don't need to live. Because if you need it to live, then it, there's no point. Exactly. That's exactly the point. And a lot of people will go ahead and incorporate. And then what happens is they're pulling all the money out of their corporation and it's like, well, you kind of defeated the whole purpose yeah. of, of incorporating. Um, and so that's usually the indicator of when should I incorporate. And I'll be honest, a lot of, you know, new associate dentists, you usually won't have to incorporate for the first year or two. And the reason I say that is the first year, you're probably going to burn through your student tuition credit. So you don't have a lot of tax to pay. And even in your first year, it's not a full first year. Oftentimes people don't start working till July, August or September, depending on when you pick up an associateship. So you only have like six months of income and your student tuition credits will wipe out most of that. You can make an FHSA contribution for about eight grand. That should bring you down your taxes as well. And then the following year, you can make another $8,000 FHSA contribution. You can make an RRSP contribution equal to 18% of your last year's income. And then you might even have some student tuition credits left over. So for that first year and a half, very often people won't have to incorporate. But again, depending on how much you earn, how much your expenses are, it would make sense to incorporate um, for a lot of people, as long as you're earning more money than you need to spend. And I think from there, it's just a bit of rinse and repeat. It is pay down your debts to the best of your ability, max out your RSP, FHSA and TFSA, and then keep extra money inside your corporation. Um, and that's without throwing a wrench in there, which is marriage and and real estate. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's a whole other ballpark, right? Because a lot exactly. of people... Maybe they're getting married around that time. And now it doesn't make sense for them to incorporate because their wedding costs, you know, 50000 or like $100,000. They have to have this extra money that they're not using in order to make it worth it. Okay. Absolutely. And I think those are really the, the key points when you're starting your career. Um, and the other thing I want to mention is real estate. That's obviously a big question. When do I buy my first home or, or how do I buy my first home? The good thing is we have projected income programs obviously at white coat financial but other companies do most major banks will have a projected income program if you are a dentist so you could buy a home as early as six months into practice um even though you don't have two full tax years to show income to the bank um but from there it really depends on the type of home you want to buy how high that payment is the key here is i'll say this because i'm a registered mortgage broker um, if you go to anyone who's a mortgage broker, they will approve you for the absolute maximum that you can get approved for. You can buy the biggest, most lavish house that you want. Is that the smartest decision? Very times, no. Very often, no. Because what happens is if I'm able to approve you for a million or $2 million home, what people don't realize is that while, yes, I can make that payment if it's five or $6,000 a month, and yes, it's an asset, that's that much more money I need to pull out of my portfolio. So really how I want young dentists to think of everything is when you pay for something and it costs a dollar, it does not. It really costs you $2 to pay for that. Everything costs double because the more money you pull out of your corporation, the closer you get to that 50% tax rate. 
Right. So you don't want to be in a position where, okay, I bought a house for $100,000 or my down payment was $100,000, but you really need to realize that you need to earn $200,000 inside your corporation to have $100,000 in, you know, after tax in cash inside your bank account. So that's kind of the key there is as a young dentist, think everything costs double of what it actually does. I think then it's just a matter of rinse and repeat. Wow. No, I, I've yeah, a lot that. of info there, but yeah. No, I thought that was really good. <laughs> Again, I'm a little more comfortable because I've been through it, but I think yeah. that's going to be really helpful for a lot of uh, young dentists. So thank you. Yeah. Um, and then I guess if we want to fast forward to maybe mid-career, or do I buy a, pra I think buying a practice is usually the next big question. It's like, okay, I so. I, I've got the house under my belt. Do I, maybe my, my line of credits and everything has been paid off and now I'm in a position, or maybe they're close to paid off. Now I'm deciding if I should buy a clinic or not. Um, and I think obviously you have two options. And I think this is where I'd love for you to chime in because you've been through it. Um, you can either do a cold start, meaning you build a unit out from scratch, get all your own equipment, you get all your own staff, and you really just, it is a newborn baby. Um, or you can buy an existing practice and then make upgrades to it. Um, I'll speak about how it works from a financing standpoint, but I'd love to get your intake on, on what your experience was and what you think is better. But from a financing standpoint, the good thing is we can typically get 0% down financing. Again, speak with someone like us or your banker to, to sort of negotiate those terms for you. But if you're buying a million dollar clinic, we could probably get away with putting 0% down and financing that full million dollars. Now, Got whether it. you should or shouldn't, that's a whole other conversation that depends on your situation. But very often we could do 0% down um, and then you start making payments on this loan to Scotiabank or RBC or CIBC or whoever, um, and you start owning this clinic. Um, now, I will say I'm a larger fan of buying an existing practice just because you have revenue from day one. You have patients, you have a full caseload that you could start working on right away. There's revenue coming in. The financing is usually easier to get as well because there's existing track record. Um, and then there's also staff. And oftentimes, if you're a young associate dentist, some of those assistants or hygienists have been doing the career as long as you've been alive. And they're a really good person to lean on. That when you're confused, you can lean on them for advice. They're your biggest it really asset, is. actually. Right. They're a very big asset. And so I'm a big fan of buying practices that already exist. And now you can always change the branding. You can always change the marketing. You can even change the staff over time. But I really like buying existing practices because sometimes there might even be a transition where the principal might slowly leave the clinic. And so it just creates for a better experience, I found, based on my clients. But I'd love to hear your your thoughts on, you know, cold start versus an existing practice. Um. Well, I mean, I did it. I did both. So I was an associate. And then in 2003, I was associate for two years. And then I was in 2003, I bought in 50% of an existing practice that I had been working in for two years. And I had brought a lot of new patients into that practice. And um, I like the team was amazing. Everything was really great. And then in fact, within a year, we had grown and actually needed a new location. So we you know, took on new loan together this time. And, but we had that, like you say, already existing revenue and we, we were pretty comfortable with what we thought we could handle and what we, what we wanted to do with the place. So we did that and that was in 2004. Um, and that was pretty straightforward. I mean, it, for me as an associate buying into the practice uh, and then the, the senior partner staying. So it wasn't like the senior partner was leaving. I had the senior partner there and he was gonna stay for at least another 
probably 15 years or so. So we're just 50-50 partners. We're 15 years apart in age. And we were really just chugging along. It wasn't, it was really great because there was already an office manager, didn't have to learn all that. So I would say too, yes, that is a, that is sweet. <laughs> that was easier for me, especially when I have a couple years later, I started having kids. I didn't have to try to think about how I would run and manage the practice. And there were still, was still money coming in, even if I wasn't there to help pay the loans. So at that point in my career, that was the easiest. When I did the other thing, which is start a from scratch practice, I had already had children that were, you know, six and eight years old. I had been doing dentistry for 15 years. I was comfortable, confident. Um, I was ready to do something like that. And I had enough confidence and a reputation within the community. I wasn't like I was moving somewhere new. Um, mm -hmm. that I figured if I built it, they would come. So that's what happened. But it was about, uh, it was probably about a million and a half loan, million and a half yeah. in loan, um, which was sort of scary, but it really didn't bother me. I've never been the type of person to kind of stay, like stay up at night worrying about the cost of something, which just scares my family. <laughs> um, but because I had confidence in that I could make more money. Like I knew that I had skills. I knew I was good with, with my, my profession. So I was like, I'll pay it back. I don't know exactly how long, but I have a really good uh, feeling that I will be fine. And so at that point in my career, starting from scratch and then this, the whole, all the finances um, that came along with it, I did make one error though that I want to, I feel like, I don't know what you want to say about this, but I feel like I did make one major mistake that I want to share is that I got two loans. So I got a loan from the, the BMO, which I had a long track record with the BMO. I would say about a million of it was from the BMO. And I would say about half a million, let's just say this for round numbers, half a million was from the BDC. Now the BDC, can you just explain quickly what the BDC is? It's the it's like a government run kind of small business. Yeah, it's like a small business bank. They specialize in small businesses and they take a more liberal approach when it comes to underwriting a business. Whereas, you know, if you walk into a bank, it's a little bit harder to get the financing you want. Right. You want to start a bakery or you want to start a, I don't know, online marketing store. It's a lot harder to get the loan from a bank than it would be from BDC in theory. But Here's what's dentists, specific to dentists. I the bank will give the you the loans. Yeah. I could have probably easily got the 1.5 from the BMO, yeah. but I just didn't also just want to just put all my eggs in one basket. And for whatever reason, I didn't have good advisor at the time. I didn't have anybody to say. So what I found is that I am in a little bit of a situation, not a situation, but it's an annoying situation mm -hmm. where I paid off all my loans to the, to the BMO. Like that's all paid. Yeah but the BDC will not let me pay them back. So I could be debt free from this practice in a sense, from that side of things on an ongoing cost, but you know, yeah. from my original loans, but they won't let me be because even though I have the money to give them, mm -hmm. and so I can only pay it back slowly. And that really bothers me. And I, I think to myself, like I, if I knew someone who was starting and they didn't need to get a loan from the BDC, I would not recommend it. So I don't know how you yeah. think about that. But. Yeah, I, I think I'll say this. BDC is amazing for people who are outside of healthcare. Healthcare is a business. At the end of the day, it's a business. And it's a business that has been around for a very long time and it is highly profitable. And so banks will give you the money that you need. Yeah. I've had clients where I'll be honest, I was looking at their loan and I was like, whoa, that is a big loan that, you know, this bank is giving a, a 28 year old person who has never really worked. 
this was someone who went straight from, you know, dental school into buying their own practice. And I was there to help them and guide them. And, but it is a big loan and they will give it to you. That's kind of the, the point of the story is the bank will give you the financing that you need, even on the mortgage side. I could take a realtor, let's say, for example, who earns more than a dentist, and I will have a harder time getting that person approved than I will versus a physician or a dentist. And that's because you guys work in an industry or a business that has been longstanding. It has a proven track record. You right. are essential. Um, if you think about COVID, you guys are essential. Your business is never really going to close down. Mind you, for a little bit, it might because of COVID, but it won't. You guys are bulletproof and there is a high cash flow. It is a high profit margin business. Obviously, that is getting the profit margins are getting tighter now, but it yeah. is historically a very high profit margin business. So the banks will give you the financing you need. You don't need to go to BDC or other other people. And if you if if the bank declines you, then sure, go to BDC. But the, the trade off is the rates are a little bit higher. Um, and the terms are a little stricter, like you just described. So, yeah, so that was my lesson, my big, one of the things I would say as a lesson learned. Um, yeah. But otherwise, I felt uh, very, like, I always, again, paid back a little, perhaps a little bit more than I had to, because my business started to really take off, and I was yeah. able to pay down that debt. And, you know, when my dad, he's the type of guy, you know, like, always pay down your debt first. So he was a big proponent and and help make sure that I I really stayed on that track and and you know it's it's great because now I have a second company which I we could maybe mention which is a holding company where mm -hmm. I don't leave money in my main corporation yeah. I put it in this holding company that then I can invest in. so that's where yeah. I'm at and that that was a little bit of yeah what happened to me but I've done both I've bought in and I've started from scratch yeah, yeah, I think that they're both good. I think, honestly, it depends a little bit on your personality. I will yeah. say it is easier, in my opinion, to do an existing practice and take yeah. it over versus a it cold start. Easy. But some easy. people are, are, are a little bit more tenacious where they want a little bit more control over the branding and how things are done from day one. Or they want brand new equipment, you know, from day one. And so you kind of have to pick what's better for you as a person, not just as a dentist. Um, you mentioned a couple things. I do want to talk about the holding company and all that, but you mentioned a couple life stages that I just realized we never talked about, yeah. which is, yes, you've bought your first house. I think we've covered that. We've covered paying off debt. We've covered insurance from day one. Children, um, that is a big one. Um, what I will say, unfortunately, um, a lot of young associate you know, clients that I have, and they're always wondering about maternal or paternal leave. As an associate, you have to pay into EI separately for Matt or, or Pat leave. Yes. But I'll be honest, I've done the math and I don't think it makes sense for a lot of people um, because the maximum that you can receive from maternity leave, I believe today is about $2,600 a month, which again is taxable. Um, and so I've had this calculation with a couple okay. of my clients and I was like, why don't you just go into the clinic once or twice a month and you'll make your 2600 bucks. It'll be nice for you because you can get out of the house from the crying baby. Um, it'll also keep your skills sharp. It'll make sure your patients don't forget that you exist. Um, it's just good all around. Yeah. And obviously, if physically, if you are able to, or even mentally, if you are able to, because childbirth is not easy, raising a child is not easy. Um, so if you are able to, I recommend you're better off going into the clinic once or twice a week, I'm uh, sorry, a month versus getting maternity. That is that side of the, the, of the conversation. The next thing is, okay, I had a child, how do I, you know, set my kid up for success financially? And so I always say to my clients, it's very much like an airplane. You put the mask on your face first before you put it on the child. It's the same thing with your money. You need to make sure your house is in order. You need to make sure you have the right insurance coverage. You need to make sure your high interest debt has been paid off, like credit cards and things like that, line of credits. 
You also need to make sure you have RSPs and TFSAs and, and retirement assets. You also need to make sure you have an emergency fund. You really need to make sure you need to make sure you have a will and a power of attorney potentially. You really need to make sure your life is in order. Um, but oftentimes people will make their will now that we're on that topic when they have a child. The key thing you want to include in your will when you have children is you want to leave a legal guardian for them. You want to make sure that God forbid something happens to you in paper, in writing, there is someone who will take legal custody of your child. Otherwise, the court, again, it's different in every province, they will have to search for the right legal guardian and they will assign the legal guardian as they see fit. Maybe you don't have a great relationship with your, your mom and dad, the, the child's grandparents, or maybe you don't have a great relationship with your sister or your brother who maybe would be the ones who take legal custody if the court appoints it. Mm -hmm. So you want to make sure you have that written out in paper for them. Um, that's sort of number one. You make sure your house is in order before you start taking care of the child. From there, our ESP is the easy one. You're going to want to put some money aside for their education long term. And the good thing with the RESP is the government will give you some money. Now, as a dentist, it's not very high because you are a high income earner, so you won't get all of the grants, um, but you do want to put some money aside. It's a dedicated savings account just for them. The taxes are very low in that account on your investment income. If if anything, they're null. Um, and you do get some money from the government. So you put some money aside for your kid through the RESP. If your child has a disability, excuse me, <clears throat> and they receive the disability tax credit, you're also going to want to set up an RDSP, a registered disability savings plan for them. And in that, the government matches very, um, very fruitfully, for lack of a better word. They will put oftentimes $3 for every $1 that you put in up to a certain limit. And so it is very good to open one of those up if your child does have a disability. Those are usually the first two accounts you want to set up for your kids. It, it, obviously, you'd hope that they don't have the RDSP, but just the RESP. Yeah, we from did there, yeah. sorry? We did that there. Yeah. And then from there, oftentimes, you might want to even get insurance for your kid. And I know this sounds crazy, um, but very often, I'm a big fan of getting critical illness insurance for your child. Um, and even like when you're looking at which company to do it through, I very highly favor Desjardins. Um, okay. for disability, sorry, for critical illness insurance for children, maybe for adults, not so much for, for kids. Right. Okay. And and again, I'm not being paid by Deja no, then or anything. It's just what I recommend because they have special conditions, even for children um, that are not part of, you know, a, dis a critical illness insurance plan that you and I would have. Um, and the key, the reason you'd get critical illness insurance for a child is to make sure that if God forbid something happens and your child goes through a serious illness, which, you know, they are not protected from, it could happen to anyone regardless of age, this amount of money is going to make sure you could take time off of work to take to spend time with your children to pay for any treatment because i don't know a single parent who's going to want to go into work when their child is in the hospital no. so and now if you're not going into work where are we going to replace that income you okay. can't take a disability leave you're not disabled you're okay. able to work never you're choosing to take time off work that's um, crazy i never thought of that and so you might want to get a critical illness plan for your kid and mind you it's going to be very cost effective um, because the child's so young, the odds of that happening are very low, but you want to make sure your bases are covered. Yeah. On the critical illness, you want to make sure that if your child gets sick, that you have money to replace your income for however long it might be so that you could stop going to work and be there with your child. And maybe they might even have some acute medical expenses that they might want to cover. Right. Some people will also get life insurance for their child, full life insurance. Um, really? here's where, yeah, look, I'll explain why. And here's where it's not as bad. Um, I, it makes sense in some situations. Just like critical illness, if your child gets sick, you're not going to want to go into work. God forbid, you know, knock on wood, whatever superstitious stuff you want to do, hopefully your child never passes away. No parent should have to bury their own child. 
But in an event that happens, again, I highly doubt you're going to clock into work on Monday morning and start working on patients and fixing their root canals and any chronic pain that they have. You know, you don't want to do that. Maybe some people do, but generally you're not going to want to do that. And so oftentimes, a lot of my clients, I will recommend that they get some life insurance for their child to make sure that if their child passes away, excuse me, that they don't have to go to work the next day. They could take time off. They can really go through the entire grieving process because I can't imagine how heart-wrenching that would be to lose a child. I I highly doubt you'd be going into work again. Or maybe even if you are going into work because it helps you mentally to take your mind off things, maybe you don't want to be burdened with with loans anymore. Maybe you want those paid off. So you could get, the good thing with Desjardins is their critical illness is both critical illness insurance and life insurance. So for example, if you get $500,000 of insurance for your child, if they get sick, $500,000 pays out, or if they pass away, $500,000 more pays out. One of those payouts will happen. And so that's why I'm a big fan of them. But some people also, yeah, yeah, some people will get whole life insurance for their kids. And the idea is that this policy will grow over the years. And so maybe it starts out at $500,000, but by the child turns 20, it's a million dollar policy. There's some cash value in it. Maybe by the time the child turns 65, there's a million dollars in cash value in this policy. And now they have a retirement asset. So it sounds really good on paper. But then when you start thinking by the time your child turns 65, how much is a million dollars really going to be? You know, some of these kids, they're born in like 2015, which sounds really weird to hear on paper. But by the time they turn 65, is a million bucks really going to be a million bucks anymore? Or is it going to feel more like 250 grand? And so that's where I tell my clients, if you've exhausted your RESP, you've gotten critical illness insurance for the kid, your house is in order, you do have extra cash then yeah, I think whole life insurance might be a good place to park some money for your kid in addition to all the other stuff you've had. But I really think it's more of a luxury rather than a need. Sure. Um, and now we can start talking about holding companies and all these things okay. because I think that covers children because yeah. the next step is let's say you've done all that. You've got the, the insurance for your kid, our ESP, your house is in order. You could actually start setting up a family trust or a holding company for your children as well and really start putting assets aside for them that they do not own, but they are the beneficiaries of. Um, And that's something you could really start doing with a family trust or a holding company, um, which I guess we could chat about now. Um, The holding company, you you mentioned it. You're doing exactly what you should be doing. You're going to have your dentistry professional corporation um, or your clinic. And what you do is any money that you do not need to cover the expenses inside your DPC or inside your business, you're going to want to move that over to a holding company. There's a couple of reasons for that. The main one is liability. Yeah. Now, I want to separate the liability here. As a dentist, if you practice, you know, if there's malpractice or there's negligence, you're not really protected from liability. Yes, you have your liability insurance, but if it doesn't cover the actual cost, whoever's suing you can still go after your personal assets, unfortunately. Okay. But if it's something beyond dentistry, let's say someone slips and falls outside your clinic, or let's, again, you're going to have general insurance for that as well, liability, but, or let's say, you know, you have multiple rental properties and one of your tenants sues you. You're going to want to make sure you don't have a lot of money inside your dentistry professional corporation, a lot of assets in your personal name to protect you from liability because your holding company won't be liable for them. That's one benefit of it. The other benefit of setting up a holding company is that you could have multiple shareholders. So you, your partner, your children, when they're old enough could also be shareholders of that company. Um, And so you could really start splitting some of the investment income that you're receiving between all the different people instead of having it in one person's name with some rules and stipulations around that. Um, The other benefit is it really helps from a tax planning standpoint. Maybe you want to sell 
the shares of your clinic. Um, and you could actually own 100% of your clinic inside your holding company. And then you could sell the shares of your holding company directly to a buyer. And so there's some tax benefits of doing that, of selling the shares rather than the equipment. And we can weigh those out when the time comes. But a holding company generally is a good idea if you have X, <clears throat> excuse me, the holding company is generally a good idea if you have excess profits that you do not need to pay yourself personally and you don't want to leave them sitting there in your dentistry professional corporation. Think of them more so like a savings account that is separate. Um, and yeah, you could set up, you, you know, invest those savings, right? Exactly. Now you could take that money tax, and invest it. Like at a lower tax bracket? Uh, like yes that? and no. Um, the tax situation when it comes to corporate investments can get quite complex and it, it okay. varies for a lot of people, but there's certain rules around passive income and you don't want too much passive income, quote unquote, inside your holding company. So maybe you don't want a lot of dividends. You don't want a lot of interest. You want to gear more towards capital gains inside a holding company. Um, but yes, the idea is that this money's only been taxed at about 12% instead of, you know, 40 or 50 in my personal name. Now I'm going to move it over to a holding company and I'm going to start investing and, and buying real estate and doing all these things to grow my net worth inside my holding company. It's just one more account or corporation that you can grow your worth in. And the nice thing is eventually you could maybe even add your children to that holding company. Um, and without getting too complicated, you could freeze the value of that company so that all the future taxation is in your kid's name rather than your own. Or even since we're talking about kids, maybe you could even set it up in a way where your child is protected in the event of a divorce because all their money is in a trust or a holding company. Exactly. They don't really own that money personally. Um, and so there's a lot of ways to plan. But whole life insurance, again, like I said at the start of this, is it's not a bad product. It's actually a very good product when it's diagnosed and structured correctly. Um, the key here is it has to be right for you and it has to be set up in your best interest, not your advisors. Right. Um, typically, the periods of time where my clients, when we start recommending whole life insurance is typically when your debt has been paid off personally, you don't really have a line of credit. All you really might have on the personal side is you maybe got a mortgage, maybe a couple mortgages for investment properties. Um, okay. maybe then we, even then like, you could get like term house, license. Just a house mortgage. Yeah. Let's say you got a house worth a million bucks. Mortgage is 500 K. Maybe you got a rental property or two and there's some mortgages there. Okay. Now, again, typically term life insurance covers, it gets the job done. The, the key here is I'm going a little bit ahead of myself, but I think term life insurance should be looked at like a, a Honda Civic. Anyone who buys a Honda Civic buys that car solely for transportation. It gets you from right. A to B in the most cost-effective manner. Term life insurance is the exact same thing. You buy term life insurance or temporary life insurance to make sure if something happens to you, you could still financially be there for your family if you can't physically be there for them. You could financially care for them without physically having to be there. And term life insurance, yes, while it expires, it is a Honda Civic. It is cost effective. It gets the job done. It gets you from A to B, if that makes sense. Yeah. But you start buying whole life insurance or universal life insurance when you have a need that goes beyond just taking care of your family. That is a need there, but now the needs are, I wanna make sure taxes are paid when I pass away. Because on top of paying off debt, maybe I also wanna pay off the tax owing on the estate when it gets passed down to my kids. Now that is very polarizing. Some people I have clients who say, I'm not leaving anything extra behind to my kids. Other clients I have say, I wanna make sure that I have a family business, I have a legacy. I wanna make sure that my children are able to build on this. Um, and it very much comes down, honestly, to your your personal beliefs and your parenting style, as well as your kids and how mature they are. Um, so that's one thing. Another time people will buy whole life insurance if they want to donate maybe to a charity. 
Maybe they want to donate to a hospital. Maybe they have a nonprofit that they really prefer and they want to donate money to that when they pass away. And that would have to be in the will. Sorry. It would have to be in the will. You would actually mainly write uh, your beneficiary would be the charity very often. And what would happen is that money would go tax free to the charity. And then you would get a big tax credit when you pass away. That should, again, wipe out the taxes when you pass away or or at least reduce them significantly. Okay, but other people is, is, is that that particular policy is not really being used, going to get used or taken advantage of while you're alive. Yeah. And well, you can. I, I, here's where you can use it while you're alive, and we'll come back to that. Another time people will buy whole life insurance is because, again, you don't know when you're going to pass away. And the, the problem with term life insurance is it could expire before, you know, you pass away. It could it could out You could outlive your temporary life insurance. Yeah. So some clients I've actually had buy whole life insurance when they've had a second marriage and there's been a divorce. And what they want to do is make sure that their children from the first divorce are still financially taken care of very often. Because technically, let's say, you know, I would, God forbid, I got divorced and I got remarried. My next of kin is my spouse. And while in my will, I could say that, hey, I want the money to go to my kids. My new spouse could still contest that will and potentially win. Yeah. yeah, wills are contestable. They're 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 public assets. Everyone has access to them. You could see what's in a will once it's in there and you pass away. So some of my clients would say, you know what, I want that added layer of protection to make sure my children are still taken care of if even if I get remarried or things like that. So there's a lot of use. These are just some of the use cases. There's a lot of use cases for whole life insurance. It just needs to be structured correctly. And here's what I mean by structuring it correctly. Very often, let's say you have a $100,000 life insurance policy or a $50,000 life insurance policy. Typically, how you're going to want that structured is the actual cost of the insurance should be relatively low. So let's say we're going with a $50,000 example. I'll give you an example, actually, that I'm working on right now with my client. He's in a situation where he is financially very secure. He's in a very good spot. He's got a lot of money from his clinic that he is making that he doesn't need to spend Personally, he does, his RSPs are maxed out. His TFSA is maxed out. His house isn't paid off, but it's at a very low interest rate. So we're not going to pay that off right now. He's got a couple of rental properties and inside his holding company, he's got a stock portfolio and he's got a couple of rental properties there as well. He's very secure financially. And so now he's in a situation where he says, you know what, Kirtage, I have all this extra money. I don't need to reinvest back into my clinic. It has great staff. I have great equipment. My marketing's on point. Um, you know, I got $300,000 every year that I don't really need right now. How do I further expand my wealth or further diversify my investment holdings? And that's now when we're buying permanent life insurance. Because okay. obviously he has a young family. He wants to make sure they're protected, but he also has a need beyond just protecting his family. He wants to set up another type of investment, another asset that is non-correlated or, or tax sheltered inside his holding company. And so really how we're structuring this is he's going to pay $50,000 a year for the next 20 years into this plan. His actual cost of insurance, like the actual whole life insurance, is only like $9,500. The other, forgive my math here, $40,500, he's just filling it with cash from his holding company into the life insurance. So in the worst case scenario, he only has to pay $9,500 a year from his corporation, which he can very comfortably do. But we're going to pay $50,000 a year because we're going to take extra cash from his holding company and put it into the insurance plan. And the reason we structured it this way is, number one, if he has a low year or he has a year where he doesn't want to contribute as much, he's not on the hook for $50,000. It's only $9,500. The other thing is when we compare this side by side with a policy that costs $50,000 just for insurance versus $50,000 for the way we structured it, the cash value is higher in the plan and the death benefits higher in the plan. 
meaning there's more cash that he could use inside that plan and his family is actually going to get more money. It's just a better plan all around. That's generally how we'll structure all of our policies. And it's how I recommend anyone who's listening to this go to your advisor. That's how you're going to want to have it structured. The reason it's never structured that way, unfortunately, is the commission is probably 20% of what it could be. And so most advisors, they're going to recommend it just as a base plan where the cost of your insurance might actually be very high. It might be $50,000. There's no extra cash you're putting into that plan. But the reason advisors will typically recommend that is the commission is like, five times higher than the plan I just recommended to my client. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. And so it's it's unfortunate. And I'm sure if someone hears this, it's going to be an insurance advisor who says, you don't know what you're talking about, blah, 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 blah. I'd be very happy to share numbers side by side and show clients because that's what's happened. I've had clients who've come to me and said, Gritage, I just got, you know, someone recommended this insurance policy to me. What do you think? I say, okay, if you're going to put 25 grand into this or 50 grand into this, why don't we just structure it this way? And very often my way or, or the way that's low cost for the actual insurance and high cash value inside of it ends up with a better scenario in all aspects when it comes to the insurance. So, so do, you, do you act like a liaison, again, back to what you can do for someone, but do you somehow act like a liaison to like help them bridge that awkwardness of saying, I want to change how this is structured? Yeah, so a couple of ways we could go about it. Most of our clients at CS pay a flat fee per year and what they're really paying for is just my advice, my unbiased, right. transparent advice. Um, and then what I will also do, though, is because I'm an insurance broker, because I'm a mortgage broker, because I have my investment registered license, I will recommend, hey, here's exactly how I would do it. When it comes to your mortgage, I will show you exactly the rates, exactly how you should structure it and which lender to go with. That way, if you want, you could walk into that bank and say, I want this mortgage. This is the quote I've gotten. Right. Or you could do it with us. And so clients have the option. You could either just do the mortgage with me or you could do it with them. But either way, I don't really care. I'm being paid a flat fee for my advice. But a lot of clients will say, you know what? I trust your opinion. We're just going to go with you. But they have the option to just go and do it with someone else because I've shown you exactly what I'm going to do for you. Sure. You could do it with another advisor if you really want a second opinion. on it. Um, that's the mortgage side. Insurance side is the exact same thing. I would say, hey, here's exactly how I would structure it. Here's the company I will structure it with. Now you can either go back to your original or old advisor or a, or a third party uh, insurance broker and do it with them, or you could do it with us. It's completely up to you. Now, again, I always tell my clients, I am going to be paid a commission on this insurance plan now that you do it with me. Right. And so very often in those situations, I'll either waive my fee for the year, um, or if the fee is actually lower than the insurance commissions, I'll just discount the fee for the year for, for the amount. But they know point blank, here's how much he's being paid. And I could honestly, if I wanted to, I could go do it with someone else. I don't have to do it with him. But very often the trust factor is there. And so we'll do it for them. But yeah. generally, I, I do want to just close off this on the insurance side. There's lots of different reasons for it. It is a good product. You just need to make sure it's diagnosed correctly. It's right for you. It makes sense in your gut. Like yeah. you just said, yes, it might make sense on financial paper, but does it make sense in your gut? Does it align with your values? Do you want to leave this extra money for your kids? Do you want to pay off the taxes for them? All those things. And then on top of that, you want to have it structured in your best interest. And generally speaking, how that is, is the cost of the insurance is relatively low. And most of the payment that you're making is actually going towards the cash value in that plan. Yeah. Um, and that's generally how you're going to want to structure these. Policies. Okay. Amazing. Yeah. And so if you wanted to take, can you, with a whole life policy, can you just not put money in some year or can you take money out and it yeah. goes against what you've gained as far as a cash surrender value? Great question. So 
how I've structured it with the low, we'll call it low, like low base, high uh, cash value. Um, you can decide that you don't want to make a payment that year and you could just pay the base. Um, so you have that flexibility. So you can skip the payments, but you always have to make sure you're paying the base cost. Otherwise, you're, otherwise your policy will either default or you will have to use the cash value in the plan to pay for the premium. Okay. Um, if that makes sense. Now, the second question you had of, can I pull this money back out? That is exactly what we're doing in a lot of these cases. You are allowed to borrow 100% of the cash value or 95% of the cash value inside your plans. So let's say you did a plan with Manulife. You could just say, hey, Manulife, there's $100,000 in my plan in cash value. I want to borrow that back. Now you could borrow that back and use it for anything you want. You could buy uh, an AP, you could buy a Rolex, which some people do, or you could put it back into your clinic. You could buy more real estate. You could buy more stocks. And I'll explain the difference between doing those two things in a second. But you're able to borrow that back and you would just have to pay interest on that loan, if that makes sense. Uh, and what, who determines what that interest rate is? The interest rate is very close to prime. So it'll be around, in today's days, it'll be around 6 or 7% that you pay in interest. But if you if your bank will give you a better interest rate you would go to the bank and that's where go with your line of credit right exactly and that's where we'll shop that around for a lot of our clients and so i'll give you a further example i've had clients who have you know cash value inside their insurance plan what we do is we're kind of just using that as a savings account because it's going to grow these days at around six percent and then they will borrow back 100 percent of their cash value and they will go and invest in a in an investment portfolio whether that's stocks or real estate or something else and the power of doing that is you have your money growing now inside your whole life insurance plan. So you're protected if you pass away, you have the cash value growing in that plan. And now you've taken a loan and put that into another asset, like let's say an ETF portfolio. And now the money's growing in the ETF portfolio as well. So all you're really doing is you're paying the interest on that loan that you've taken. But the good thing is in Canada, when you borrow money to invest for investment purposes, interest becomes tax deductible. So in that scenario I gave you about my client, He's going to be filling this policy up with about $40,000 in cash every year, taking a loan against it and putting it into his stock portfolio as well. And we're going to be deducting the interest every single year. So even going back to your BDC example, while, yeah, it's not great to pay interest to, to BDC, I always say the interest you want to pay last is the tax deductible interest. In your case, that BDC interest is tax deductible when it comes to your return because you used it for investment purposes like your clinic. So when it comes to paying off debt, you want to pay off debt that is not used for investment first, and then you start paying off investment debt because yes. the interest is deductible when it's okay, investment. I'm going to check on that because... Uh, yeah, you should be on your tax returns. All yeah. the interest you're paying to BDC, you should be deducting on your tax returns and reducing... Okay. It should be an expense line on your, your financial... like a student loan would be, the interest on a student loan. So unfortunately, student loan interest is not tax deductible. A lot of people think that. Um, your oh, professional okay. line of credit is not tax deductible tax deductible, but also your government and federal, uh, so provincial and federal loans, they're not tax deductible, but you do get a student tuition tax credit tied to how much you paid for the school. Okay. I missed yeah. I might've, maybe it was like that. Well, years yeah, ago. it's, it, it might've been like that. Now here's the other thing on that note is let's say I buy a rental property. There's a mortgage on that property and let's say the interest rate is 6% and it's a rental property. Again, I'm deducting that 6% in interest against any rental income I earn from that property. Okay. So anytime rule of thumb, you are borrowing money to invest in your practice or, or an asset or an investment, you are able to deduct the interest. Okay. So just like all the loans you take to start a clinic, you're able to do that. Even if you decided today, I'm going to take a line of credit for $100,000 and spend $100,000 on marketing for Lux Dental. 
aesthetics. Let's just say you wanted to do that. All the interest on that $100,000 line of credit would be tax deductible as well. And so typically debt is not a bad thing if it's being used to invest because it's almost interest-free if you really think about it because yes. it's being deducted. Okay, I that's really helpful. I, I really think yeah. people are, um, there's some gold, like some little nuggets in there for no matter who's listening, I'm hoping. Yeah, yeah hopefully. I, I know I was very uh, erratic and I just kind of like went all yeah. over the place, but I'm hoping, I was just kind of trying to throw as much out there. So if people have questions, they can obviously reach out. Yeah, no, I think that was very well um well, you know, well explained and you can't cover everything in one episode, of course, but uh, depending on what demographic is listening, I I feel there's something in there for everyone. So, mm. yeah, I think that's it. Was there anything else you think uh like maybe I I guess I'm trying to think of like a key takeaway or I I know people get a little emotional or a little tense about money, but um, and I think debt, you just kind of mentioned it, is that debt get, people think debt is bad. Um, but the point, I guess the thing that I've learned just from studying this type of thing over the last year even, is that it doesn't have to have a lot of negative, it can, debt can be okay, or debt is, can be no big deal, depending on where you're, what other things are going on and, and how you're paying it back and whether or not you can get it, you know, like you said, um, as a tax deduction, the interest on it and things like that. So that should yeah. make people feel a little better because like you say, with money, there's a lot of like shame around not knowing and then you're afraid to ask and look stupid. But then there's also a lot of fear and emotion, I think. I think maybe in a lot of cases that may be why people like marriages break up because there just wasn't enough um, education or comfort zone. Like people have different comfort zones with 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 debt and with you know wealth and things like that so honestly i think everybody should have someone who's like a financial yeah. coach <laughs> i agree I, I guess what i'll say is yeah like you said don't have financial shame no one knows about this stuff it's not taught in school and i'll be honest if you're on like tiktok or you're on youtube or all these things yes those resources are out there but one there you don't know if it's in canada or the u.s i get videos sent to me all the time of yep. like your age they said i could buy a house with five percent or sorry three percent down i was like i'm sorry that that is correct but it's in the united states so there's a lot of misinformation yep. the other thing is a lot of content is not made for dentists or physicians you are not the same as other people i'm sorry that's just financially speaking your financial planning needs are very different yep. so i would say always go get a second opinion i'm here for them if you ever have questions and i don't want this to sound like a shameless plug but if you have second opinions ask me even my clients, I tell them, go talk to someone else. Make sure this feels good in your gut. And so go and get second opinions. Talk to multiple people. Ask your colleagues what they're doing. But don't trust anyone blindly. Now, I would also say this. Your accountant is usually a very good source because like myself, they're being paid That's a flat fee for the year. So again, like myself, it's like no matter what you do, I don't care if you do it with me or someone else. You're just paying me a flat fee for my advice. It's the same thing with your accountant. So those are usually two very trustable sources because they're not being paid commissions or all these other things. Um, and so that's really what you should do. Go get a second opinion. Don't have financial shame. And I'll, I'll take it a step further. You are going to work with an advisor or someone like that. Make sure you get along with them. Make sure you actually like them as a person because it's a long-term relationship. Um, and I think that's kind of it. And I'll also say this. A lot of times people can manage their own finances as well. Um, a lot of my clients actually manage their own stock portfolio. They, they manage their own finances and they'll just use me as a sounding board very often. So. Wow. Um, yeah, that, really just use, do what feels right for you. It's your money. You work your 
butt off for it. Make sure, you know, it, you feel good about it. Okay. And so two last questions. One is what would be probably the most impactful book or so, it doesn't even have to be on finances, but some book that you've read that you feel everybody should read this book and then how we can get in touch with you. Any contact information? There's so many good books. I'm just I'm looking, know, right? at my, I'm looking at my bookshelf here. I have a couple even on my desk. I would say Four Agreements. I think that book should be read, read while you are, you know, in elementary school and it should be taught every year until they are ingrained in your head. I can't think of how many less arguments, how much more inclusive the world would be, how much nicer people would be if all of them read The Four Agreements. I think that is a staple. I agree. Um, I really like uh, Discipline Equals Freedom by Jocko Willink. Um, I think it is the most accurate statement um, ever. I that discipline. That one, but I am a big fan of discipline. <laughs> yeah, I, I think Jocko, his podcast is very good. I'll be honest, his podcast is a little dark because he is an ex-Navy SEAL, I believe. Okay. And like sometimes he's talking about war and maybe you don't want to hear that first thing in the morning or at yeah. night. So, um, but his book, Discipline Equals Freedom is a very good book. I really yeah. like it. Um, okay. I also like a book. I'm trying to pick ones that like most people don't already know about. Yeah. Um, the other one is Russ um he's a he's a rapper but he also wrote a book i really love his book i gift it to so many of my clients um it's called get out of your own way i believe or get out of your own head um and it is a great book it's like this big it's very small you could read it in one sitting i have it on my desk i constantly read it every day mainly because it just gives you i'm sure you struggle with this but i definitely do because i know most people do is imposter syndrome um, it doesn't matter sort of, we kind of touched on it. It doesn't matter what goals you hit. You just kind of blow past them. I mean, like, ah, whatever I, I did it. Now let's move on to the next thing. I think that book makes you feel a little bit more confident or it gives you permission to feel more confident. And I really like that book. So highly, highly recommend it to okay. anyone who's dealing with imposter syndrome or uh, just wants to feel more confident about who they are and what they do. And, and that's something that I, you know, if there's one thing I could give to my kids, it would be confidence. Like, just and it's so hard it takes years somehow um but there are some really great books just like that out there so thank you yeah. i really appreciate that now how can um people reach you if if they want to reach you and of course yeah. your podcast i mentioned the uh, yeah so uh, the podcast is the dollars and doctor show you could type it into spotify or itunes and you should be able to find it anywhere it's also on youtube um and then social media the easiest way to connect with me is actually on instagram i think i have tiktok as well but I don't really, I'll be honest, I don't sign into most of these apps. I, I post content. The only one I'm actually ever signed into and I read messages on is Instagram. Yeah, so too. my Instagram handle is Mr.MoneyCanada. Okay. Um, and so people can follow me there. They okay. could DM me. And then on LinkedIn, it's just my name, Gurtej Varn, um, G-U-R-T-E-J-V-A-R-N. Uh, you could just go into LinkedIn and find me there. But Instagram is usually the best place. Um, and then on Instagram, you'll have access to my White Coat Financial Instagram page, as well as our website and, and pretty much everything is there. So you have a White Coat Financial Instagram and yeah. your own personal. There's two pages. Honestly, it is so much work. I don't know why, but my marketing guys told me to do it. So I was like, okay, it's double the content I have to make now. You're the same. You have Dr. Peggy Bound and then you have Lux Dental Aesthetics. No, and it's like, oh, no, I never oh you just it. have the one? I just, okay. I, I started this, <laughs> you know, this account, Dr. Peggy Bound. And how many times did I go, okay, I should have one just for the clinic. Yeah. It just doesn't happen. It doesn't take off because so much work. It's the work. And, and also, I don't know. Yeah. I suppose it's the work. I, I feel like clinic on its own 
a dental clinic, and this is just what I see, is when I see the doctor and the clinic as a, an account, it tends mm -hmm. to be more interesting. If okay. it's just a clinic, it's a just pictures boring. of teeth. It's a bit boring. I mean, most dentists are their clinic Instagrams are are a bit boring. But I mean, yeah. maybe I'm biased. I don't know. Yeah. But that's why I sprinkle in. You see in mine, like what my core beliefs are, what my mm -hmm. habits are, and I and I sprinkle in some just some fun things and like quotes and uh, because there's got to be more there. I don't think you should yeah. just follow my clinic. I don't know why you would just follow my clinic. Once I you agree. get your teeth done and you're happy, you're probably not going to keep going, oh my God, what's happening in the clinic today? But they, I always make sure it's a bit of a surprise, like there's something different and it could be something for my personal. So mm -hmm. I tend to be a bit biased there. And so I never really did it. But yes, it's also more work. <laughs> It is more work. And I'll be honest, my initial thought was on the white coat financial Instagram and TikTok and YouTube. Like there's a separate page on LinkedIn too. all of yeah. the different social media platforms. My idea was that's where I'll post the more educational stuff about money. And really the goal is to financially educate, even with the podcast. It is yeah. how do I educate you guys on, on things that you should know so that whether you come see us or you go see someone else, you're at least armed. You know what you should be doing. Um, and then the goal was with my page, the Mr. Money Canada was to share more of my personal life or things I'm into. And yeah. I'll be honest, I just, I can't ever pull out my phone when I'm in, in, in my personal life, if that makes sense. If I'm on vacation, I'm never going to take a picture and post it on social media. I've been told I should do that by the marketing guys and people should know what I'm like in my personal life. But I was like, I don't know. I'm very present. I kind of put my phone away. I will text and reply to clients, but yeah. I just won't go on social media. Yeah, I don't know. No, that's very good. I think that's more balanced. That's the way my family would probably have it if they could. Yeah, exactly. Right. And yeah. <laughs> so I got to get better with that. It's a bit, and we talked about this when you interviewed me, it's like, it's, it's a really creative part of my life. You know, I yeah. feel that it's creative and I love sharing and inspiring. So some of the things I'm going to be doing are different than, you know, what you're talking about too. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's hard. And so, Everybody has their comfort level with it, yeah. but uh, no, you're, you're there though. You're, you're, as long as you're accessible and people can find you, you know, a lot of professionals, they're out there, but they just think automatically think, assume people will find them and, and the right people will find them, but they won't. So as long yeah. as you have a couple avenues, um, you're fine. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why, yeah, Instagram, I'm usually on there. If people yeah. have questions, they could DM me and we could just sort of go from there. Thank you so much. It was really Oh, thank you, Dr. Bowne. I appreciate you having me on. This was a pleasure. Like I said, it, it's fun because I used to watch this podcast. I had you on as a guest and now I get to be here. So so thank you for it. And again, if my my advice and everything was a little bit sporadic, um, <laughs> forgive me. I was just trying to get as much nuggets in here for everyone listening and give a little bit for every single different life stage. Yeah. No, well, thank you. And uh, I'm yeah, I know I'm going to any information or questions I get, I'm going to I'll be passing them along. And, and thank you. And every, anyone who's listening, if you have more questions, just post or send us a DM right now, because you won't think of it again later. And you know, it's better to just send these now and address and not let worries or thoughts of you know, what I should do with this aspect of my life from a financial standpoint. Um, just kind of plague you or keep you up at night. So we're here and uh, reach out. And again, thank you for listening and I'll see you all next time.
Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy day to to listen to this podcast. And again, hopefully I inspired you in some way. If you feel this was helpful or you have any colleagues that you think would really maybe enjoy some, some of the content like this, we're going to be here every week. And I would so appreciate it if you would subscribe to my channel and also share this little discovery of this new podcast with your friends and colleagues. If you do want to reach me, you can certainly find me through my social media channels, Dr. Peggy Bound or Peggy Bound Dentistry, and or you can reach me on my email, peggy at smilesbybound.com. 